Hello, and welcome to episode 3 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. If you have struggled through the last two episodes, then I applaud your tenacity in hanging in there with all my ramblings. Thank you. If you've just stumbled across this podcast, then please know that you've missed two episodes which set out some of the useful background, so you might like to pause this offering and spend a little time catching up. This week, I want to step away from the virtual tour that I started last week. It is my intention to intersperse the tour episodes with readings from some of the wonderful books we have in our library. In some cases, they will be from autobiographies written by guardsmen, or from books written about guardsmen. This week, I'm going to be somewhat self-indulgent. Well, at the end of the day, it's my podcast, so why the hell not? I'm going to share with you some readings from a book about one of my boyhood heroes. The book is entitled 50 Years of Army Music. This is a real example of Does What It Says on the Tin. It is an autobiography covering this man's incredible career, as the book says, 50 years in army music. For this is a book about a real guards doyen, the first commissioned director of music of the Coldstream Guards, Lieutenant Colonel John Mackenzie Rogan, commander of the Royal Victorian Order, Doctor of Music, an honorary member of the Royal Academy of Music. The Guards Museum has several artefacts relating to this wonderful man. He was a big man in the Guards, both in terms of his physical stature, but also by reputation. He was a tall, burly, moustachioed man who was an impressive unit in plain clothes, but when you put him in scarlet tunic and an officer's bearskin cap, he became a giant. Musically, he was blessed with both a huge talent, but also an insatiable love of music. He died in 1932, but my late father remembered him as an impressive figure. He was born in 1855 and joined the British Army on the 4th of February, 1867, aged just 12 years. He was posted to the 11th Regiment of Foot, the North Devons, who were at that time stationed in the Isle of Wight. At only 4 feet 11 inches, he was a diminutive character. Little did 1832 Boy Rogan know that this journey, started but a mile from his family home, would, over the next 50 years, take him all around the world to play for heads of state, for celebrated classical singers, and to work with the greatest composers of the time. Within the museum collection, we have two rather gruesome implements on display. One is a cat of nine tails, and the other a deserter's D. The former was used to flog or whip soldiers as a method of punishment, and the latter was used to brand soldiers who had deserted from the regiment. These seem like implements from the Middle Ages, but 1832 Boy Rogan, whom my father remembered seeing, actually witnessed both a flogging and a drumming out ceremony. The links in the chain from where we stand today to these events being witnessed are actually very few in number. This excerpt is taken from chapter 2 of his book. All the romantic notions of army life 
which had been implanted in my young mind by my father, were almost shattered by the gruesome spectacle connected with my first appearance in a depot battalion parade. Even today I feel the horror of it. A soldier was to be flogged for what we should now regard as a relatively small offence. He had stolen some trifling article from a comrade, been tried by court-martial, convicted and sentenced to be flogged, the most degrading punishment that a soldier could suffer, except perhaps one. That one worse fate was drumming out. Before I left Parkhurst, I was, as it happened, to see a soldier drummed out, and on the whole I should say that to be kicked out of the army with that soul-destroying ceremonial was even worse than flogging. But flogging was terrible, both for the prisoner and for the men and boys who saw it, and I declare in my opinion that it was a happy day when flogging was abolished in the army. The morning was savagely cold and a foot or two of snow lay on the barrack square. The prisoner had been awarded 25 lashes with the cat o' nine tails. Two specially selected drummers had been ordered to deliver the lashes. I should explain that drummers were trained as part of their duty in the regulation manner of flogging. The outline of a man's figure from the shoulders to the hips was drawn on a blackboard. The NCO instructor stood with the blackboard on his right, facing the drummer with the cat o' nine tails, who had the blackboard on his left. The drummer was to describe a wide, horizontal figure of eight with the cat, so as to bring the tails together, and to ensure velocity and direction, then to strike with all his force on the board, aiming to land the blow inside the figure below the level of the shoulders. On this bitter, snowy day, the prisoner was marched under escort to the ball alley at the back of the prison, and tied up by his wrists and ankles to a triangle or heavy tripod, with his arms and legs extended and his chest supported by a crossbar. The full depot battalion was present, also a medical officer in accordance with the invariable rule. The adjutant read out the crime and the sentence. The officer commanding could either approve or modify the sentence of a court-martial. In this case, there was no modification. Drummer, do your duty, was the order given by the commanding officer. One drummer gave twelve stripes and the other thirteen, each with all the severity that was compulsory in the delivery of the blows, for the poor drummer had to do his duty whether he liked it or not. There would have been punishment for him had he taken it on himself to soften the blows. It was a sickening sight for a boy, and I need say no more about it than when the lashing was finished the prisoner's back was like a piece of raw liver. Discipline was so unbending at that day that the men never showed any instinct of resentment, even at such fearful punishment as flogging. In fact, they had very little sympathy with the prisoner if he was a bad man. Soldiers who have served in the new armies may regard it as incredible, but it is a fact that when I joined, and for some years after, one of the punishments for deserters and men of bad character was to brand them on the skin near the region of the diaphragm, with the letter D, or the letters BC. By branding, I do not of course mean burning, but the application of a stamp which left an impression that would be difficult to remove. This was done in the orderly room of the Corps of Drums, by the drum major, 
in the presence of the adjutant and the medical officer. About a month after enlisting, I had to take part in a drumming out of a bad soldier, probably one of the last drumming outs ever held in the British Army. It was indeed the very last word in military degradation, for no circumstance was omitted that would rub it into the memory of the prisoner and the battalion. We were formed into three sides of a square. The prisoner under escort faced the parade. The colonel and the adjutant, both mounted, stood close by, while the drums and fifes of the depot battalion were formed up near the head. I can see it all before me now. The adjutant reads out the description of the offence and the sentence of the court-martial, which is that the prisoner be discharged with ignominy. Then we hear the order wrapped out to the NCO, whose duty it is to strip the culprit of his medals, buttons, facings, badges, trouser stripes and any other distinction. Amid absolute silence, there is no movement on the whole parade save that of the NCO. The buttons are cut off with a knife and deliberately thrown one by one into the dust, until in a few minutes the man has only the bare uniform that he has disgraced. All the decorations are gone. His tunic and trousers are roughly pinned. Then the troops are formed into line. The prisoner is handcuffed. A small drummer boy steps out with a rope and a running noose to it and places the noose around the man's neck. The drums and fifes strike up that traditional tune, the rogue's march, and away goes the procession. The band first and the rogue behind, led by the drummer boy and his rope. From the right of the line to the left, then back again between the ranks, the band, the escort and the rogue step out so that every one of his comrades may have a close view of his wretched end as a soldier. The band makes for the barrack gate, and the rogue, as he reaches it, is given a vigorous farewell kick by the boy. The gate is slammed on him, and he is taken over at the other side by the civil authorities. There is no more of the army for him. In this particular case, the rogue was imprisoned for two years. To make the disgrace still more thorough, an army notice of drumming out was always posted on the door of the parish church in the native place of the offender. A harsh punishment, but they were harsh times. John Mackenzie Rogan went on to become the bandmaster of the 2nd Battalion of the Queen's Regiment, a post he held for 14 years before he was selected to become the bandmaster of the Coldstream Guards, a role he took on in April 1896. He conducted his band at the funeral of Queen Victoria, and he recounts the story of how the Royal Navy came to pull the gun carriage carrying the Sovereign's coffin. It is very wonderful, when we look back upon the history of what we call the Victorian era, that a single monarch, one stately and supreme little lady, should have spanned the years from the time when her countrymen were still talking about the Battle of Waterloo, to that in which we had won the Boer War, or at least made sure that the Boers would not win. The reign of Queen Victoria encompassed so much in war, in the arts, and in industry, that it amuses me always to hear people jibe at the Victorian era. That era is the register of great experiments, discoveries and inventions. Only the Elizabethan era can challenge its supremacy. In the January of 1901, 
it was rumoured that the health of the Queen was failing. We know now that the Boer War was so much of a strain upon her that she felt it almost as if it were a personal responsibility, and that she would weep like a mother over the losses of the army that she loved so well. From the spectator's point of view, the inspections of troops going to South Africa and coming home again were formalities and nothing more, but to the Queen they were occasions of poignant emotion, of great grief and great joy. It was an awful shock to the nation, to all the peoples of the Empire, when the news came of her death at Osborne House, Isle of Wight, on January 22nd. On the morning of February 2nd, the kings, the princes and the ambassadors were waiting at Victoria Station to pay reverence to the Great Queen. The Navy and the Army and the Auxiliary Forces were represented. The bands assembled were the Royal Marine Light Infantry, the Brigade of Guards, the Corps of Royal Engineers and the Royal Artillery. The coffin was taken from the train and put on the gun carriage, and the bands marched before it, playing Chopin's Funeral March and Beethoven's Funeral March in B-flat minor, alternately all the way. Following the coffin rode King Edward, mounted on a charger and in the uniform of a British Field Marshal, with the German Emperor on his right and the Duke of Connaught on his left. Sympathy and respect could be read on the faces of thousands who lined the whole route from Victoria to Paddington, watching the impressive sight in silence, broken only by the solemn music and the slow tread of marching feet. A smaller procession was formed at Windsor, but a hitch occurred on the way from the station to St George's Chapel. The gun carriage bearing the coffin was drawn by artillery horses, and one of these became so restive that King Edward, walking immediately behind, just escaped being hurt by one of its plunges. Blue Jackets, who formed the Naval Guard of Honour, lived up to their tradition of being the handymen. Removing the horses, they converted the harness into draw ropes, then formed themselves into teams and drew the sacred burden through the streets of the royal borough to the chapel. The accession of King Edward VII was proclaimed in Friars Court St James's and at places in the city on January 24th. The Earl Marshal, the Duke of Norfolk, riding in cavalcade with the Deputy Garter King of Arms and others, with state trumpeters in attendance. After the proclamation, the trumpeters blew a fanfare, the troops presented arms, and the band of the Coldstream Guards played the national anthem, which now for the first time in over 60 years, was God Save the King. When, in the middle of February, the King drove down to open Parliament in person, with Queen Alexandra at his side, the Coldstream Regiment, with their band and state colour, furnished a guard of honour at Buckingham Palace. As soon as the King and Queen were seated in the gorgeous state coach, built, I believe, for King George III, the guard of honour presented arms and we played the national anthem. I noticed that the coach was not moving and began to wonder what the matter was. Then I saw the king and queen step out. Immediately a high officer of state came to me and told me to continue playing the national anthem until the king left the quadrangle. Something had gone wrong with the coach. The ponderous old structure had been overhauled and refurbished for the occasion. But now, for some cause or other, it would not move. That His Majesty was annoyed was quite obvious, and those responsible seemed to be having a warm time of it. 
Things were put right, however, and the coach moved away. When the king and queen left the quadrangle, we had played the national anthem 16 times over. Early in March, the king decorated many officials who had taken part in the various sad ceremonies connected with the funeral of Queen Victoria. On this occasion, I was presented with the silver medal of the Royal Victorian Order. In another chapter, he relates how he made something of a protocol error and was pulled up by it by King Edward VII. The event took place in 1909, when the King was presenting new colours to the territorial battalions on the east lawn of Windsor Castle, following the reforms of the army named after the Secretary of State for War, Sir Richard Haldane. This extract from his book. The reorganisation of the auxiliary forces and the founding of the territorial battalions and associations in 1904 was commemorated in a magnificent ceremony on the East Lawn of Windsor Castle in June 1909, when the King presented guidons to 12 yeomanry regiments and colours to 96 territorial units. The troops on duty at Windsor Castle at the time took part and the music was furnished by the mass bands of the Brigade of Guards and the pipers of the Scots Guards. There were also guidon and colour parties and detachments from the territorial battalions, numbering in all some 2,000 men. The troops were in review order, and the spectacle was splendid and impressive. After a short voluntary for the assembling of the chaplain-general and the officiating clergy, the ceremony of consecrating the colours began with the singing of the hymn, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. This was followed by prayers and the blessing of the colours by the chaplain-general. Then came the solemn consecration, which will serve as a text for all soldiers. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, we do dedicate and set apart these colours, that they may be a sign of our duty towards King and country in the sight of our God. Amen. Another prayer was followed by the hymn, O God, our help in ages past. After the benediction, we played another short voluntary for the clergy to retire. Then His Majesty bestowed the colours on the territorial units, while the mass bands played selections of music under my direction. The presentation of such a number of colours took two or three hours. The King said he was satisfied with everything, and I personally received a message to the effect that he was particularly pleased with the musical arrangements and the playing of the bands. Edward VII was a king who, if I may use a colloquialism, knew his job from A to Z. His eye for detail was remarkable, and he abhorred laxity in matters of etiquette. When I received from him the Royal Victorian Order of the Fifth Class in 1908, I at once discarded the silver medal of the Order, which he had given me some years before, under the impression that the higher order superseded the lower. A day or two later, when we were playing in the drawing-room at Buckingham Palace, the King came and spoke to me about the music, but he said nothing about my decorations. However, two days later, I happened to meet Sir Frederick Punsonby. He accosted me at once, saying, I have a message from the King for you, Rogan. When you were playing in the drawing-room the night before last, you were not properly dressed. I was aghast, as may be imagined, for that was a crime of which I had never before been guilty in my life. I assured Sir Frederick that I was quite unaware of the nature of my delinquency, 
and begged him to enlighten me. Yes, he said with a twinkle in his eye, and rather enjoying my consternation, you were improperly dressed. You were not wearing your medal of the Royal Victorian Order. The King wishes me to say to you that a medal is not an order, but it is something quite separate from it. In future you are always to wear both, and please tell the other bandmasters. I had been caught napping, undoubtedly. The King had, of course, noticed the absence of the medal from my tunic when he was talking to me in the drawing-room, and with his unfailing delicacy had chosen this method of putting me right. I lost no time in passing on the information to my comrades. There were only three of us who had both the decorations. That, so far as I am aware, was the first and the last time I was ever improperly dressed on parade. Mackenzie Rogan was also responsible for the music at King Edward's funeral, and this extract tells how he used drums to great effect, and how he had to deal with a crisis which could have wrecked the entire funeral procession. There is music in the drum. It had always been part of my musical faith that the drum was an instrument of great potentialities, when used not merely as a supplement to the rest of the orchestra, but as a separate and an individual thing, an instrument that would, in its primitive and barbaric way, move the human heart even as the organ and the violin move it. My faith was confirmed by the approbation bestowed upon the drum effects which I introduced at the great memorial services at St Paul's in 1902 for Cecil Rhodes, the Empire Builder, and the soldiers fallen in the Boer War. When I mentioned to Sir George Martin, the cathedral organist, that I had an idea of writing special music for the drums, he gave me his willing accord. As I heard it in my mind's ear, the music of the drums would open with a soft fluttering, which would be hardly audible. Gradually the whisper would rise to a tremendous thunder, then fade again to a delicate murmur, and finally to die away altogether so that it might seem as though there had been a visitation in the echoing roof, as from another world. What I had in design was, in fact, music which would bring the memory of that graphic saying of John Bright. The angel of death has been abroad throughout the land. You may almost hear the beating of its wings. At those early services the solemn drum prelude did precisely what I had hoped. It was, however, at the funeral of King Edward that it had its highest emotional, and if I may say, its most poetic effect. That was by far the most sorrowful state funeral I have ever known. I wanted the drums to tell a story of their own, to reach the very deepest chords in the hearts of the mourning crowd. Accordingly, I went to Major General Codrington, General Officer Commanding London District, and the Chief Staff Officer, Colonel Granville Smith, and asked that all the side drummers in the Brigade of Guards should be placed at my command. As I had made up my mind to rewrite the prelude for drums which I had used at the road service, I said that as this was the first time anything of the kind had been attempted in the open air, I felt quite convinced that I should be justified in using every available drum. That the occasion, moreover, was one which we were all anxious to mark in such a way that it would leave an impression on our countrymen which would never be forgotten. The General Officer Commanding agreed to my proposal and granted me every facility for carrying it out. 
So for the procession from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, for the lying in state, I had about 80 side drummers to produce the effects I desired. Apart from these, I had about 250 musicians in the four bands of the Brigade of Guards, and also the mass pipers of the Scots Guards, numbering about 40. The London Scottish lent us their drill hall for rehearsals of the funeral marches, and I had many applications for permissions to attend from people who said they feared they would not be able to get close enough on the day itself, so as to hear the effect of the unique combinations. The General asked me how long it would take the procession to get from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, and in order to make it absolutely certain, I paced out the whole route myself in slow time. I found it would take exactly 43 minutes, so then I knew exactly the number of bars of music that would be necessary. The pieces which I suggested for the approval of the King were as follows. From Buckingham Palace to Marlborough Gates, Prelude for Drums, followed by Beethoven's Funeral March in B-flat minor. From Marlborough Gate to the Duke of York's Steps, Flowers of the Forest, played by the Mass Pipers. From the Duke of York's Steps to Downing Street, Prelude for Drums, March Funèbre by Chopin. And from Downing Street to Westminster Hall, Prelude for Drums, followed by the Dead March from Saul. On May 17, 1910, at 10.45am, the mass bands assembled outside the main gates of the palace, facing east. The four bands of the Brigade of Guards led, and I placed the four bass drummers, together with the band's side drummers and cymbalists, in three ranks behind the second band. After the four bands came the 80 massed side drummers from the drum and fife bands, and in the rear, the massed pipers. Then came the gun carriage bearing the body of the late king, escorted by 32 NCOs and men of the household troops, and 24 yeomen of the guard, and the royal standard borne by an NCO of the first lifeguards. Following the coffin walked King George with the Duke of York and Prince Henry, and between twenty and thirty kings and princes, all on foot, members of the royal household, mounted and dismounted escorts, and the carriages of Queen Alexandra, Queen Mary, and the Empress Marie. Detachments from the navy and all branches of the army lined the route. The march began. The prelude for drums started with that faint, far-off beating, as though an unseen host from a world beyond were hovering in escort about the majestic obsequies of the great dead king. That the effect was what I had striven for, I could see from the very first few bars. The people had been talking quietly and reverently, but as the soft waves of eerie sound fell upon their ears, and as the reverberation swelled and fell and rose again, I could see a great change come over them all. Whispers and movement ceased. Men seemed turned to stone. Tremulous women were in tears. The drums were carrying their awe-inspiring message into the hearts of us all, musicians as well as the rest. Each time the eighty drums played, I observed the same effect. They did their work that day almost terribly. During the march, I found myself suddenly faced with perhaps the most critical perplexity of my career. One of King George's commands was that, once the procession had started, it must on no account be checked by a halt or even a marking of time. 
In going over the route, I had noticed that the archway leading from Horse Guards Parade into Whitehall was much too narrow to allow the passage of bandsmen marching eight abreast and carrying instruments. There are, however, two smaller archways, one on either side of the main arch, though the gates of these were kept locked. The day before the procession, I saw Colonel Granville Smith, the Chief of Staff, and explained to him that it would be necessary to have the small gates open to allow the bands to divide and pass through without causing delay. Then and there he sent for the Royal Engineer Officer and gave him a strict instruction that the two archways must be left open for the procession on the morrow. Naturally, I relied on the order being carried out. But the next day, when the procession was crossing horse guards and the bands were within 30 yards of the arches, I noticed to my intense dismay that the side gates were closed. I might have seen this sooner had my attention not been concentrated on the bands and the music. Hurrying up to the sentry on duty, I questioned him, but he knew nothing at all about the matter. I must confess that for a few moments I felt helpless. The bands could not possibly get through the narrow archway without causing a lengthy check to the whole procession, to say nothing of interfering with the music, which had to be continuous. That the king's command would fail to be obeyed seemed, for some seconds, inevitable. Something had to be done and done quickly, if the situation were to be saved. A solution of the problem came to me in a flash. I hastened back to the bands and gave the sergeant of the leading band the instruction to pass through the ranks the following order. The two outside men on each flank will fall back on reaching the arch. The whole will pass through the arch in quick time, reforming on the other side and resuming in slow time. Luckily, of course, the change into quick step will be hidden by the archway and the manoeuvre, if all went well, would avoid a check. But there was also the music to be taken into consideration. The mass bands and drums were playing Chopin's funeral march at the time, and I knew they could not play huddled up with their instruments and hurrying through the arch. So just as the leading rank of the first band reached the arch, I passed another order. Each band will cease playing going through the arch, but on reaching the other side will recommence playing. I think the next few minutes were the most anxious I have ever lived through. The whole thing might so easily have proved a fiasco. With ill-disciplined troops, it undoubtedly would have resulted in a confused scramble. But the splendidly trained men of the Foot Guards bands rose to the occasion, carried out the sudden instructions with absolute accuracy, and neither the march nor the music was interrupted for a second. Nor indeed did anyone but the musicians and myself perceive anything untoward happening. At the House of Commons, the band and drums formed up on the roadway facing the railings of the new palace yard, and continued to play until the cortege had passed through the yard into Westminster Hall. In its magnificent solemnity, that short march was the most profoundly moving in my experience. At a later procession on May 20th, when the body of His Majesty was taken to Paddington Station, the bands which took part under my direction were the Royal Marine Light Infantry, the Brigade of Guards, Royal Engineers and the Royal Artillery. The procession will be remembered as the most majestic pageant of sorrow that has ever traversed the streets of London. The long cavalcade of kings and princes, the wealth of colour in uniforms and decorations, the mighty show of naval and military power, made it a superb ceremony, a great farewell to a great king.
while the coffin was being put onto the train at Paddington, the vaulted roof echoed to the supreme dirge of Handel's Dead March from Saul, played by the Brigade of Guards bands. And then, as a simple and homely contrast to the imperial splendour, there were the king's charger and his terrier Caesar, led by a ghillie, following their master to the last. I doubt there was one dry eye at the pathetic sight of that little white dog paying his tribute among all those kings and rulers of the world. While the coffin was being put onto the train at Paddington, the vaulted roof echoed to the supreme dirge of Handel's Dead March from Saul, played by the Brigade of Guards bands. I can see now the picture of the terrier straining at the lead as the train disappeared, striving to follow his master that he loved. The Band of the Coldstream Guards was the first guards band to be sent to France in World War I to play for the troops, and this at the insistence of Mackenzie Rogan himself. Following the success of this trip, and seeing the very positive effect it had on the troops in the front line, the War Office decided to set up a rota, sending each of the guards' bands out to France for three months at a time. You may recall in last week's episode that I described the medals and decorations of the Earl of Cavan, an eminent grenadier officer. Mackenzie Rogan described meeting him in 1916 in France and talks about playing under fire. Our own small experience of playing under fire was supplemented when, after an accidental meeting of mine with Colonel Guy Baring, we went out to entertain encamped troops and gave a concert to our own 1st Battalion Coldstream Guards, with earth-shaking shells exploding all the time a few hundred yards from where we sat, and a big air fight proceeding simultaneously overhead. It was a few days after this that at a concert at a Belgian chateau, General the Earl of Cavan, commanding the 14th Corps, thanked the band for all they had done, and the cheerful way in which we had done it. That little speech, delivered from my box in the centre of the band, was reward enough for us all and Lord Cavan put the seal on it by asking everyone to take wine and cigars with him. General John Punsonby gave a birthday dinner on March the 25th, and he made the best of hosts. A few nights before, the General had given me some verses of a song he had written to the tune of Cobb's On the Way to Mandalay, and I had a few band parts scored. To his intense surprise, the band suddenly played it and sang the words which they had painstakingly learned. There were loud cries of, Author! Author! I think the General blushed. In fact, I'm sure he did. Lord Cavan remarked to me that I must be the oldest soldier serving on the front, and that I was to be congratulated, as also this was my jubilee year of service. General John Punsonby declared that when I completed my fifty years, there must be a celebration dinner in the Cloth Hall at Ypres. The irony being, that building was at that time, of course, a complete ruin. Lastly, I want to relate a tale he used to tell against himself, which underlines the old saying, Pride comes before a fall. Our man was a dedicated director of music, and also a prolific writer of music too. His canon of work is extensive, and his marches and compositions are frequently played to this day. He tells that he had written one particular piece of music, which was, in his opinion, some of the best work he'd done, albeit a rather long piece. 
it falls to the bands of the Brigade of Guards to provide music for the royal investitures held in Buckingham Palace and in Windsor Castle. And as the Coldstream Band were due to play the following day for such an investiture, he decided to premiere his new work during that ceremony. The day came, and he went with his band to the ballroom in Buckingham Palace, and as King George V invested the lucky recipients of the awards, Mackenzie Rogan conducted his new magnum opus. Once the ceremony had finished, he returned to the officers' mess in Wellington Barracks, feeling rather pleased with himself. That afternoon, he was presented with a letter by the mess waiter, who said it had been hand-delivered by a butler from Buckingham Palace. Mackenzie Rogan was enthralled. He turned the envelope over to see the King's royal coat of arms. With trembling fingers, he opened it to find a letter therein from no lesser person than the King's private secretary. How wonderful! The letter read, Colonel, His Majesty does not know the name of the piece of music played during the investiture this morning. What His Majesty does know is that it will never be played again. I think one could quite easily describe the king as a tough audience. So there you have it for this week. Some tales from a truly remarkable book about a truly remarkable man who gave a lifetime of pleasure to both soldiers and civilians alike. Some years ago, I spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Chatburn, who, like John Mackenzie Rogan, held the post of Senior Director of Music of the Brigade of Guards, or, as it is known today, the Household Division. I asked him what he thought the main task of the guards' bands was. He said, that's simple. They are the voice of the nation, be it in good times or in bad, be it a royal wedding or at the cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. They give a voice to the nation's outpouring of emotion, be it joy or grief. It's powerful stuff, to be sure. I have been Andrew Wallace, and this has been the third episode of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. Don't forget to give the podcast a rating, hopefully a good one, as that helps us enormously. And drop us a line to let us know what you think of what we are doing here. The email address is simple. It is guardsmuseum, or one word, at aol.com. If you would like to support our work, then do give a donation at www justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum support. Once again, that is www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum support. Until next week, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away.